Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Aaron Dickey is Kentucky born and raised. At the age of good bourbon, he left to attend Washington University in St. Louis at 18. 30 years later, St. Louis is not only his home, it's headquarters to the Dickey Law Firm. A 20-year practicing attorney, Aaron is a champion of working people with occupational-related cancers and other injuries. Tonight, school is in session as we learn the ins, outs, and a few surprises about whiskey, jazz, and leadership as I sip on Old Weller Antique 107. This is straight talk you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Galen Bingham, and this is the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Cheers. Okay, so we're going to do this one more time. One more time. I hope you guys have uh, settled in with something that you enjoy to drink because this is going to be an amazing conversation because I'm relatively new to this whiskey game. And one of the people that I credit for being my godfather to help me understand how to drink whiskey and bourbon and understand this thing is none other than Mr. Aaron Dickey, or doctor, as I like to call him. Aaron, come on into the conversation, man. I am so excited and and just thrilled to have you be part of this conversation. Come on in. I'm glad to finally be part of it. I've been listening and I've been envious. I've also been very surprised at the erudite level of conversation that has happened prior to this episode. So uh, we'll just try not to disappoint on that level. Uh, I did want to do a a show and tell, which I know I can't really do in a podcast, but I was going through and helping my father move out of the family home that they've been in for over 50 years. And I found a couple bottles of Henry McKenna uh, in this original stoneware. So unfortunately they were empty, but it's cool to have the bottle from the fifties. So it's, it's the white stoneware with the with the blue paint on it. It's got that handle on it that you put your finger through and you lay the jug against your forearm and that way you can take a little swig and you don't spill anything. These are the kinds of folks that I hang out with and I got a, I've just got a ton of questions that uh, I want to bring in to my listeners because you are just a wealth of surprises, a wealth of knowledge. The first question I want to ask you, and probably it may even be the most important question, this could be life and death here, but I got to ask, what you drinking? Well, what I'm drinking is a Rock Hill Farms. This is a a Buffalo Trace product. I like it because it's sort of in their in-between zone. 
because they have their uh, you know elite brands that none of us can get our hands on anymore. Uh, and then they have their everyday stuff. And this is sort of the in-between where it a price point where regular people and regular human beings can enjoy themselves a very fine whiskey. One thing I love about it is the bottle. And again, I can't show that to you, but it's got, you know, the, the sort of golden horses on there. That, it, that's just a picture reflection of what they put on top of their Blanton's bottle. It, you know, the bottle shouldn't matter to a whiskey, but for some reason, for me, that's always been part of it. And, and I think the reason for that is because I enjoyed the beauty and elegance of the bottles before I was ever allowed to drink it. Because of course I grew up in a very conservative household and uh, uh, unless uh, you were alone with grandpa, nobody was going to give you a taste of anything. <laughs> uh, Rock Hill Farms is actually uh, on my list. If you, the listeners, if you go back to the conversation I had with KP Westmoreland, I actually broke out the list that started this thing for me. And the story again was I was in San Francisco and walked into this bar and the bartender seemed that he seemed to know a lot about a lot, uh, had an impressive bourbon display. And I asked him to write down a list of five or six bourbons that he thought that I should taste sometime before I die. And I shared that list. Rock Hill Farms was on that list, you know, and I, and I got the Rock Hill Farms immediately, like three months later, but my taste buds were not mature enough to appreciate it then. And I've been looking for that bad boy ever since. Since I knew I was going to have this conversation, I had to bring out a juice that you actually turned me on to. I don't even know if you remember this story, but this must have been five, six, seven years ago. Uh, You invited me over to your home um, because our daughter's kind of grew up together playing sports with each other. And uh, I was just barely getting into bourbon. And you you shared this old Weller antique original 107. And you gave me a shot and uh, I tasted it, you know, actually just trying to be polite. I just said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll taste it. Thank you so much. Thank And I tasted it and it just oh my gosh, it just really did something to me. It set me in my tracks. And I spent the next two years trying to find <laughs> Old Weller Antique. And finally, you said, yeah, you, you, you're not going to find that here. And you actually gifted me this bottle. And I've been nursing this bottle ever since. So I'm going to crack this open now because I think it's appropriate. You need to finish that bad boy up in this pandemic year because I can I can find you another one. Oh, Remember, we've got Dr. Dickey out there, the retired horse veterinarian. He'll he'll be able to hook you up with something. I only drink like a half an ounce at a time, <laughs> but because I got you on, I'm gonna go ahead and pour a couple of I'm gonna pour a couple of fingers here. So now, before I just continue gushing over you. Please share with the audience a little bit about your background so that we can get into this conversation and and get into the real whiskey conversation. We're going to talk a little bit about some jazz. As you know, I can't have very many conversations without talking about leadership to some level. So we're going to hit all three today. So I'm going to enjoy this as we hear a little bit about your background and, and what's brought you to this to this conversation. Well. I was born and raised in 
Danville, Kentucky, which is in Boyle County. And that's sort of nestled between a lot of these uh, bourbon counties. In fact, some of the counties are actually named bourbon. It's there's something about the water there, the, the pH of the water, the pristineness of the water uh, that goes through that limestone filter and uh, the, the grain that's grown in that area. And, it, you know, it's it's mixed together in those correct proportions. Arguably, Elmer T. Lee, who was the master distiller for Buffalo Trace uh, for many decades, came up with the formula. He came up with the magic formula and all of their whiskeys. Uh, you know, are that same exact formula, just aged in different increments. And he said the argument behind that was to uh, to give every man in America a chance uh, to buy one of their fine products at whatever price point they happen to be earning at. So that's why, you know, a lot of these Buffalo Trace products have a similar flavor profile. But the Weller that you're drinking right there and the Rock Hill Farms that I just had a sip of, it's the same mash bill. It's just treated differently after it's initially cooked up. And one of the things that Elmer T. Lee had been doing at that point, almost 70 years, he said uh, he'd spent his entire life trying to figure out the best way to age whiskey, to give it the most perfect and balanced flavor. And he said, wouldn't it be ironic if what we discovered at the end of this journey was that all we needed to do was put it in a barrel and leave it outside exposed to the elements and have a man with a gun to guard it. Hey, that sounds like a plan. That sounds like a plan. (laughs) So Kentucky raised. Moved to St. Louis, uh, went to Washington University, went to law school out here. I started representing working folks because I had worked as an electrician's apprentice. Uh, This is in high school and college. And uh, so I had worked around uh, on job sites and around a lot of dangerous places and worked around asbestos and, you know, had that phenomenon where, you know, I go past a job site that I used to work at and see guys in moon suits, you know, you know, the protective uh, tape all over it and, and taking out all the bad stuff that I used to work with. I've ended up spending the past 20 years representing guys who get sick, who were just doing their job and trying to, you know, earn for their families and, ended up getting uh, cancer as a result. Wow. That is not only work that pulls from your your vocation, but you've you've got, you know, some real personal passion around that as well. Now, help me because I, I have been trying to articulate in the conversations that I have this connection between the art of leadership, because there, there is a skill there. There are things that you have to know and there are things that you learn, but there's an art to being an effective leader. And there's an art to understanding and appreciating whiskey and bourbon. And then there's also an art to jazz. Help me, help me articulate that freedom within a framework that exists in both appreciating whiskey and this leadership space? Well, let's start with your layer of it. Uh, you know, and I've heard you speak before and, and I've, I've read one of your books and I've listened to your podcast. And I feel like what you do with your, your leadership analysis is you're looking for the things that are there and then noticing the things that aren't there and trying to remove elements that aren't needed and add elements that are. You could almost think of it as a musical chord. So if you're trying to get a particular sound as a musician, as a jazz musician, 
sometimes you're trying to find a particular note to complete the chord, or sometimes you're hinting at it, or sometimes you're playing the note that's in between two notes. Um, and I feel like you as a, as a leader or, or any leader is trying to figure out what is it that we're trying to play? You know, what are the notes on the sheet? What are the notes that aren't? But also get rid of the stuff that doesn't sound good. You know, or in the case of whiskey, it's a flavor profile. So you're looking for, again, what do, what do we say when we talk about whiskey? There's notes of persimmon and cinnamon and uh, vanilla and, uh, you know, butternut and, you know, the words that I would normally never say. But we're looking for those notes. We notice those notes. Sometimes we notice something we don't like. I, ideally, in a whiskey, you can't remove it. You can just not drink it. But in, in a musical context, you can change the key of the song. You can change the musician that's playing that particular instrument. And as a leader, you're doing the same thing. You're a band leader. Mm. One of the people who I go to a lot as I try to bridge that gap is I go to a lot of uh, what Miles Davis said and a lot of his quotes. It's almost getting pathetic how much I reference him. But one of the things that he talks about is that anyone can play that the note itself is only 20%, but 80% is the attitude of the dude holding the horn, that each of us brings this personality to anything that we're doing. So you, you are a legally trained, you are a trained lawyer. And so you know what everyone, every other lawyer knows. However, it's the attitude, it's the personality that you bring to the things that you work on that makes the difference. Very similar to what Miles Davis had to say, very similar to what uh, you know, I try to do in some of the things that, that I work on. How does that sit with you that you know, anyone can play the notes only 20%, but the rest is the attitude of the personality? I, I wish I could say I'd, I'd heard that quote before because I love Miles Davis, but I, I was not familiar with that quote. And that is that makes complete sense. Um, and I think how you present an idea and the confidence that you support it with is, is almost like the breath support when you're playing a saxophone or, you know, playing some other instrument, playing, playing the horn like, you know, Miles Davis's trumpet. Uh, you know, it's 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 the breath that supports it, that makes it makes it beautiful. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've talked about in the past is how, for me, leadership at its core is about courage. This courage to do what you believe is right, although there may be personal sacrifice. There seems to be at times, whenever you see things fall apart in whatever the setting might be, when you see things fall apart, I often go to, it's a failure in leadership. There's a lack of courage here. That's why these things fall apart. When have you seen something fall apart because the person in charge or the players involved didn't have the courage to do what they were there to do because of some other reason? Obviously, any in any business, the motivation to have that business is to be profitable. Because if you can, and obviously that doesn't include nonprofits, but you know where I'm coming from. So if you, in a law firm context, Ultimately, the touchstone and what motivates all of us is, you know, helping the client. You know, the Bible says 600 something times to help widows and orphans. And that's just the Old Testament. There are things that we're supposed to be doing. And if we, you know, if we can 
do that and make a profit, then we're, we're kind of in the sweet spot of where we're supposed to be and things will work out. I think if you get too far away from that, and I don't want to give two specific examples because I don't want to call anybody in my industry out on a whiskey, uh, jazz, and leadership <laughs> podcast. But if you get too far away and focus only on the profitability, then you can lose your goal. You can lose you know, your soul, as it were. But if you get too far from profitability, then you have to lay everybody off. And so there's, there's some balance there that you have to find between you know, why are we here and, and what's our mission and, and then the business side of it as well. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like finding the right build for a nice whiskey, right? Exactly. Trying to balance things out because if it's too far this way, it's bitter. It tastes like a, a burnt tree root. And if it's too far this way, it's too sharp and it's almost vinegary, you know, and you can, you can clean your engine parts with it, but you don't want to drink it. So I had a, a suggestion, especially now that you brought up the, the music uh, part of this, I wanted to see if I could get a musician friend of mine on the phone, just sort of as a surprise thing, uh, see if he's available. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right. So hold on. Hello, Hello. Craig. This is Aaron Dickey. I actually, um, I have you on Galen Bingham's Whiskey, Jazz and Leadership podcast. You know, I've been gushing this afternoon uh, about the fact that I got to talk to you. So I was telling Galen, you know, it's Craig Holiday Haynes, and you are a, a legendary drummer and a legendary jazz musician, and you come from a, a family of legendary drummers that you had uh, were very good friends with a with a friend of mine, and you know we were going to talk today, and we wanted to see if we could we could pick your brain on on a few things. Okay, sounds good. Well, hey, well, first of all, thank you so much. I am beyond honored to have you on the phone the honor is mine as well so uh, i've known galen for several years he's uh, been a a business executive and and been able to give leadership advice and counsel to you know fortune 500 companies he is also a huge jazz fan and a whiskey fan and he's also an expert on leadership he's written several books on that stuff so one of the things we were just talking about was what makes building a musical sound similar to building a company or, you know, building an organization to actually making, you know, a fine whiskey? Like, are there, are there common elements to those things? And I know you're familiar with whiskey, especially Japanese whiskey. I know you know about business and I know you know about music. So I just wondered, you know, what you felt like, especially coming from a drummer who I feel like is the foundation of everything. Interesting. Well, you said it all. <laughs> the relationship in a wide variety of ways. Uh, to make some analogies, I guess you could say it's that they're both, you both have to work at them as a democracy and that you have people working with each other to come for the common good. So I would say that's the first obvious one, the fact that it works like a democracy, you know, both business should and music. You're absolutely right. And that is a great way of thinking about it. You know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in my conversation is how a lot of folks who listen to jazz casually, they think that people are just up there playing, that there's no structure, that they're that everyone is just kind of doing whatever they do and there's no structure. And, And I've come to understand that there is structure. 
but there's freedom within a framework, right? How you express yourself while you're doing your thing to get to that certain point is really, really important. And so I'd love to just have you share, what is it like to have that freedom within a framework, that freedom to do what you do, as long as you stay on beat in your case, as long as you hold the, hold the tempo of the, of, of the tune, you can do that any way that you want. That's a beautiful thing. Um, and I mean, considering the way we've seen it, times change just within, say, two generations, say, our generation and our parents' generation, you can see the time when our parents came up, jazz was the popular music. So it's, it's deep. <laughs> it's deep. Uh, and to see it now it's come back, it's not nearly anywhere what it was, say, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even the 60s. But there's a new new technology and digital age is taking it to a whole other level, which is, you know, some, some older people kind of dislike change, but uh, change is inevitable. That, you know, things have to, one of the good things that you mentioned that uh, my father is, I had to thank my father for being one of the first modern drummers and jazz drummers, essentially breaking up the beat, doing what he wanted to do. Before him, most drummers just played the beat, and he just played the beat, he just drove the band, he just kept the time. Him and a few of his peers started breaking things up. One of the things that I did prior to this conversation is, you know, I just took a look at all of the people that your, your father played with and every time I would see a name that I recognized and appreciated, I would wonder, I wonder if he played with this. Well, yeah, he played with that person, too. And well, I wonder if he played with this vocalist. Well, yeah, there, there's that vocalist, too. And I'm just so amazed. Oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing. I remember even more than 20, 30 years ago, we used to say that my father was the only drummer to play with all the great jazz vocalists and great jazz saxophonists of you know, period, pretty much. Uh, but he's not just the only drummer, he's the only person, any musician, to play with this wider variety that's still, you know, still around playing. What I thought interest, was interesting, Craig, is yes, your your father set all drummers free to be able to experiment and do what they wanted to do. But I, I feel like your generation and, and you in particular continued to experiment. So you didn't just stop right there in right. bands like Sun Ra, where it was, I don't want to put them in the experimental band. And sometimes Sun Ra had like three drummers going on at the same time, doing different oh, yeah. rhythms yeah. layered on top of each other. I remember, I remember doing it once with five drummers. How do you even keep track of that five drummers at the same time, trying to all sort of weave that carpet? It's a feat. <laughs> it's a feat. It's not as easy as playing by yourself to see all these different rhythms coming around you. It increases your own discipline, I suppose. One of the things I was really taken by was not only did your father play with all of these amazing, iconic musicians and vocalists and you've had an incredibly storied career as well as aaron was saying continuing to kind of push the boundaries as to what is possible but you've met a lot of people so who are some of the people that you've met that have really kind of stayed with you their impact has stayed with you i I understand that you're named after one of the most iconic vocalists in our era Ms. Billie Holiday, but who are some of the people that have impacted you that everyone would recognize as being iconic? I 
mean, it was Sarah Vaughn, of course. I mean, Duke Ellington. Uh, I mean, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix had a big influence on me. And James Brown, of course. Um, Didn't you almost run away with James Brown? <laughs> Just after I joined Sun Ra, James Brown's music, musical director wanted me to join the James Brown band. I thought about it. I really was adamant about playing jazz. I, I wanted to stop playing commercial music. What happened was the Downbeat magazine came out, and um, there are two different polls. I don't remember which poll it was, readers or critics poll, but one of the polls had Sun Ra in four different categories, Sun Ra in the band. And we, the band was over the Buddy Rich band and over the Count Basie band. So I said, well, James Brown's not in here, so you would see my name in, with the picture in the, in the paper or whatever. That wouldn't happen with James Brown. Not that that's what it's about, but, you know, it makes a difference. <laughs> Craig got to play with uh, Lionel Hampton, Tony Bennett, Allman Brothers, uh, Marcus Miller, Gladys Knight, Rachel Z. I mean, it just a ton of ton of people. This is amazing. One of the things I heard you say, and I, I'd love to get more thought around this. You said Jimi Hendrix had a great influence on you, and on the surface, that sounds odd. That a guitar player would have an influence on a drummer. Tell me a little bit about the influence that he's had on you. That's interesting to ask that question. I played guitar actually before I played drums. I never, I never really was that into the guitar, but the guitar is what made me realize I wanted to to play music. But Jimi Hendrix was another story. I probably maybe put you know put down the guitar anyway. So, but at meeting him, he was such a such a humble, spiritual person. You know, it's just it just was a deep meaning after, especially after enjoying his music for so much so long, you know, a couple of years. He had more of an impact just in terms of temperament, I would say, than, than musicianship. Musicianship as well, of course, because he was, he was a master. So I started to do that and to record. I, just, I haven't recorded, but there's so much stuff I have in my head I would love to record. Yeah. Oh, my. Like, like I said, this has been an incredible honor. I, I would love to just hear from you. What do you say about the, the state of jazz music today, uh, because as you said earlier, it's not quite as big in today's generation as it was with my dad's. And and that actually kind of made me feel nervous about saying I really like jazz because it's not something that that was uh, popular as I was coming up. But it seems to be making a comeback. What's your, what's your take on the state of of jazz music with today's generation? Oh, and now with today's generation, that's it. That's a different spin on it. Today's generation regarding jazz, it's kind of, for me, it's pretty sad because for the most part, you know, the masses listen to jazz, as you said, but not the poppy music. What's even sadder than that, that they don't listen to jazz, that most of the stuff they listen to is, is I said, detriment to, to human race. <laughs> Some of it is pretty bad. They say that you can judge society by its music, and music ahead is... There actually is some good music coming out again, just starting to come out again for a good while. I don't know what happened there. Well, I think everything's cyclical, and I do think it's coming back. And my daughter, who's 18, coming to me and you know telling me about music is some of the classic stuff. So it's, there's some, there's some encouraging things there. I think, I think we'll find our way back. The other thing I, I think jazz is part of America's uh, soul and the fabric of America. And it's one of our few exports to the world. You've traveled the world, you've seen the world. And, and, you know, like you said, in Japan, you run into these 
the whiskey culture over in Japan, that's an American idea that took root over there, just like jazz. Jazz is very big in Germany, you know, uh, and and why is that? Because we, you know, when we were an occupying force and, you know, after World War II, uh, the U.S. soldiers, uh, you, you know, wanted to hear the jazz and, the, and it took root in Germany. And, and there are some very fine jazz musicians in Germany. One last question for, for me. I mean, you mentioned uh, Japan and Japan, uh, Japanese whiskey. And whenever I hear Japanese whiskey, for me, the definition is hibiki. That's one of my f- all-time favorites. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm nursing the one of the few bottles I've got of hibiki. What's one of your favorite whiskeys, whether it's Japanese whiskey or just any, uh, you know, from any culture, what's, what's your favorite? Boy, <laughs> wow, this whiskey I just had months ago and i can't remember the name it was really good too the so the next time galen or or i are out in las vegas we'll make sure and drop off a nice bottle of whiskey for you i would love it if we could pick your brain some more on on this kind of stuff and and we may be reaching out again uh to ask you a few more questions but i really appreciate your time and uh galen is there anything else you wanted to to ask him No, just thank you so much. This has been a great surprise and such an honor. Uh, Likewise. All right. And I look forward to meeting you soon. And and we maybe need to get you you into our friend Joe's uh, studio when he gets it set up in Miami. So that that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Thank you again, Craig. And and, and I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.